Last night, Joseph was talking about, do you remember that Joseph talked last night? (laughs) Last night, Joseph was talking about a mindfulness, the difference between just being in the present and mindfulness, actually knowing clearly what's happening in this moment. The difference between awareness and just kind of hanging out. And in some ways, all the different techniques, the different methods that we've offered here, and there's many, many more, all the methods of Vipassana are not about trying to create some better state or to make you good meditators, but they're all methods to support, to enhance our recognition, our familiarity, our trust in awareness itself in kind of the the purity of awareness and in coming to the way we come to understand how our minds work, as Joseph talked about, is not by sitting down and figuring it out and making charts and graphs, though God knows that's been done enough, but by just the moment-to-moment absolute surrender with total commitment into awareness of whatever happens to be arising right now. So in a way, awareness, mindfulness with clearly knowing is the path. Not even talk about goal, but moment to moment, it is the path. So awareness, mindfulness, awareness that's mindfulness is all about the attitude, what qualities are in the mind, in the consciousness at the moment with awareness. It's really what I want to talk about. So we're not here to cultivate a particular experience. I mean, you might be here to cultivate a particular experience, and maybe you'll get it, and maybe you won't. And then if you do get it, you'll find out it really didn't matter. You know, it came and it went. And then here we still are. Here we still are with the, I don't want to say task is the word that comes to mind, but that's too, that's not inspiring enough. Here we are with the joyful and at sometimes daunting and vast life path of exploring the nature of reality, the nature of suffering and the nature of peace and freedom, and finding that the, the recognition, the understanding of both, either one, freedom and suffering, is right here, right now, in what's arising in this moment, how it's observed through the quality of the purity of mind of awareness or the confused, deluded mind. And we take turns experiencing one or the other. That's what we're studying. We're studying the deluded mind, as Nyoshal Ken said once, and we're studying the awakened mind. And it's not like, here's all the deluded and somewhere else is the awakened. It's like back and forth, back and forth. So we're here to reintroduce ourselves to our, there's no our, of course, our own awareness, just the natural, pure, knowing quality of mindfulness. When the knowing faculty, when consciousness is not colored by, when we're not identified with the qualities of confusion, of wanting, of craving, of ill will, of fear. They could even be present, but not when we're identified with them. When purification of mind or cultivating the pure heart or mind is spoken of, I used to not like that term because it brings up all pure, impure, good, bad, all that stuff. But if I think of pure as like squeaky clean, which is so, how someone once in an interview described to me, she'd had a, uh, some moments of just this really pure moment-to-moment awareness. And that's how she described how the experience felt, just like the mind and heart is squeaky clean. And whatever's arising is just this. Nothing in excess and nothing lacking. Just this with wholehearted presence. This is not some unattainable, esoteric state up on Mars somewhere. Because I think, I I don't know where I said it. I don't know if I said it here in an interview or what. But uh, 
something that really makes this whole path workable for me is the understanding, is the knowing that there's only moment-to-moment arising and passing experience, that there's nothing that lasts for more than a fraction. So knowing that, what we call my mind at this moment, my mind filled with greed, okay? Have you had that experience at all, of your mind being filled with greed? Yes. And how one might call it that. I'm such a loser. My mind is filled with greed. That's become very solid, very temporal, lasting in time, and something really difficult that we have to do a lot of stuff to change and become a person whose mind is not filled with greed. Of course, the trouble is really as long as I'm a person who, that's really the source of it, but we'll get there later. But if you notice, in that moment, what's happening is that in a moment of what we call mind of consciousness, this knowing quality, arises in a moment, and all different mental states or mental factors come and go with it. With it. So a moment of greed is really that. A moment of consciousness, a moment of other mental factors, and coming together in that moment, there's also greed. That doesn't mean it's steady state. Now, if we get a, yeah, I do want that, I do need that, let's really crank it up, well, that moment of greed strengthens the next moment of greed, but it's very kind of, you know, cause and effect, very rational. If with awareness, oh, greed feels like this, What's being fed in that moment, not the greed? In that moment, the interest, the attention, the ardency, if you will, the love is going into the awareness. Wow, awareness of greed. Greed feels like this. Greed doesn't last so long in that moment. It's not being fed. The awareness, the mindfulness gets stronger, and you might very well discover the next moment is a moment of, ah, just this. And then the next moment is, wow, I had a moment of no self and no greed. Wow, I want another one. And then there's a moment of greed. Right? That's how it goes. How can we take this personally? We do take it personally. That's why we're all suffering here. We react to each of these moments like, oh, what does it mean about me? I'm so bad. I'm so good. I'm so liberated. I'm so lost. It's exhausting. It's a moment of greed, a moment of pure mind, a moment of delusion, a moment of, I mean, it's not so clear-cut, I realize that. But it's not unattainable. That's what I'm trying to say. And our path is this ardency Joseph talked about last night of total commitment of interest of, I like to use the word love, really, love of awareness, of this process of just being willing to be totally here and see what's happening without our interference. I mean, it sounds easy, we know it's not, because we are schooled to interfere. Because we're schooled to think that somehow we can fix it. We can decide to be a better person. We can decide to stop being greedy. I mean, we know that doesn't work, right? Because if it worked, we wouldn't have to come do this. But we don't really know it doesn't work. So as Joseph said last night, what we're doing here, and we're, we're quite privileged to have this opportunity, also privileged in that we're interested, that we care enough to explore in this way, because as you already know, it's not always enjoyable or easy. It really requires, in some ways, the strongest commitment of our life, because everything's included, everything. There's nothing outside of this exploration, how can there be? Because in each moment, everything is here, that's all there is. Anything we try to exclude is delusion, pushing away the reality of the moment. So we're privileged, and it is somewhat rare. But what, what I really wanted to get to tonight is it, it, it may be rare, but it's not some esoteric thing that's somehow divorced, separated, from the way we live our lives, from the way everyone lives their lives in the world. What we're watching and learning about, hopefully, and suffering from and feeling joy with in our own minds here in little things is the exact same processes that go on in all human minds, which 
is both beautiful and, to me, extremely frightening. Um, I think Sally read from the Dhammapada, but I just wanted that last line, with our minds we make the world. This world, this whole world, with our minds we make the world. This summer I was um, in Munich for a few weeks, and I was, I was there longer than usual, so I had time to do something that I've wanted to do for many years but never had the personal time to do, and that was to go to visit Dachau, which is the, um, the, one of the concentration camp memorial museums from the, the Nazi wartime. And this was, for me, a really, it was a very powerful experience, grounding, very grounding, and in, a, in an unexpectedly, um, I know what the word is, the word isn't, it was just unexpectedly powerful. It kind of brought me home even more deeply than usual to kind of the, the vastness of the human mind, the vastness of what we're doing here, and, it, and the, the reality of what the mind can create in the world. It kind of aligned me with what's really important in this world and how completely out of whack the world can get. And it's not just about concentration camps in the Nazi time. I don't have to even run through the list of things. I'll say some in a minute, but they, um, it's in, a, it's in a really quite a lovely park, and it's really big. And that's what, one thing that surprised me. There's a, a couple of buildings that are still standing, and in one of them, they made a museum, and I think they did a really good job. It's just lots of kind of big um, bulletin board placards with, with different information, you know, like different aspects of Dachau all through the years, and really very broad almost too much information to take in because it was room after room. But the way they did it that was so, I thought was so skillful, was that they'd give an overview, maybe medical testing, maybe that one was about that. And they'd give an overview, but they always made it um, individual. There was always a picture of, a, of a, some particular people. It would say their names. It would say a little bit about them, whether, you know, whether it was a guard or whether it was an inmate. But there was a way that it, it made it, you couldn't just say, oh, it's some vast other there thing. It's a really individual person after person after person. I think that's what grounded me in what's really important in this world, in this life, and not in some kind of la, 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 oh, yes, it's just compassion is the natural state of the pure mind. I mean, I say that all the time. In a place like that, looking at the vastness of how many people were involved I can't just so easily go, well, it's just, you know, as soon as you see how much suffering aversion causes in your own mind, the wisdom naturally arises and compassion is there. I mean, I do believe that. I have experienced that. But that's rather glib in the face of whatever we might be confronted with. And we never know what we're going to be confronted with in life. So when I say the vastness beyond the individuals, that's why I thought that was so wise, because otherwise you just get lost in the bigness. Then out behind, there was just the, um, the foundations where other barracks had been, but they were gone, so it made it like a nice part. It was huge. I don't know, 20 or 30 barracks had been there. And when I talked to some of my, my friends, when, when, I, when I came back into Munich and talked to friends, and they all said, oh, that wasn't even one of the big ones. And that just kind of, I don't know, it made it all more real. And in my life, I've done tons of reading, you know, about the, uh, the whole gulag system under Stalin, a lot about Chechnya, Bosnia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, racism and sexism and bigotry in this country. I mean, you can look around anywhere. It's not a one-off. And when you look and see how many people and individuals, there's no way my mind could say, oh, these are just the bad, weird people. These were all monsters. Can't be so. Can't be so. So many people involved in so many ways. There have to be pretty much regular folks, most people. You know, and it, it makes me look in myself, you know. 
I don't know what I would do if I was in a situation where each person has to make, in some situation, a small choice. We can make choices from greed, from fear, from denial, from looking around, well, everyone else is doing it, it must be okay. Or the denial of we just don't see what's too painful to see. I'm sure you've recognized that in your own personal experience. And you can't see it till you see it. You can't talk your way out of it. Or fear or wanting to protect someone or afraid of losing something, who knows? And each decision might be as good as one can make, not, not knowing how to work with greed or fear or denial. We don't know what we do in a situation. Um, it makes me think of a book I read a few years ago by a doctor named Hassan Baev. He's a Chechen. And he had come back from Russia. He's a surgeon during the height of the war between Chechnya and Russia to just work in the hospital. And he was the only surgeon in all of Grozny doing operations on both sides of people in the conflict for some years. It's a, quite a story. And so because of, since he wasn't taking sides, even though he said, I'm a Chechen, I'm a patriot, but I'm, I'm a doctor first. The name of his book was The Oath, the oath being his oath as a doctor. And so it was a very intense. I don't have time to get into it anymore. But the thing I always remember him saying was that his oath was to cause no harm to help as a doctor. And he said, when you're, he said, I was in a situation I'd never been in. I'd never held a gun. I'd never been in the face of violence. And he was threatened and attacked from both sides. And he said, when you're in a situation you've never been in before, you don't really know ahead of time how you're going to act, how you're going to respond. And so I think for me, I, I really can relate to that. I don't know. And so when this somehow, this being in Dachau and just connecting me with all these other uh, kind of strands of study, as I say, it grounded me in a way that actually gave me a, a stronger sense of commitment to this path and commitment to understanding our mind because of seeing even more profoundly the strength, the power of these habits in our mind of fear, of greed, of wanting power, of ill will, of aversion. I mean, so much of that, let's get rid of all this group of people, comes out of fear of the other, out of wanting something you know, the way it used to be. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so seeing the vastness of it, rather than getting completely discouraged, is more like, yeah, let's get real about this. I know that we don't have to be driven. I don't have to be driven by these forces. That it's possible to be filled with anger, filled with fear, filled with greed, and really feel it and not act in that, in that way. But the only way it's possible isn't but to have some idea, oh, I want to be a good person. I won't act from anger anymore. I tried that one. The only way is by really knowing fearlessly how greed and hatred and anger and fear work. How do they arise in our mind and heart? How do we experience them? How strong can they be? What's the effect of acting on them? And the only way we can know that is by really being so interested with awareness, with kindness, to just sit back and watch it all happen. Here, I mean, granted, we're in a situation where we're not going to be challenged in a life-threatening way. We are in a special situation. And the situations that come up where we feel filled with fear and filled with greed are going to be not you know, as intense as being life-threatening or having your family threatened. But that doesn't make the way that these habits work in our mind any different. And so don't just kind of say, oh, well, I'm filled with greed, but it's just about you know, wanting another helping for lunch, and it ran out, so I'm just a greedy person. Sit down. Don't judge it. Watch how it's about a stupid thing, but that's not the point. Watch how strong it can get. The greed can be so strong that even though I have the full intention to be fully present with, oh, greed is like this, 
greed is like this. I'm feeling it in my body. I'm noticing the thoughts. And then suddenly, I'm out in the parking lot with my car keys, thinking, oh, where can I go get some ice cream? <laughs> oh, how did I get here, you know? Oh, I think greed was kind of the intention. But then I at least, thank God, I noticed it, you know? And if you don't have a car, I'm sorry. We're not going to take you. <laughs> but it's, it's, so it's little. And it's OK that it's little. But the force of how these habits work is working in the same way. And seeing how, in even an example like that, the greed or the not getting what we want, really. If, we, if there's greed and then we can get what we want, we don't have to actually look at how much suffering there is in the greed, because we got what we wanted. That's how samsara works. You know, you want it, you get it, you want another thing, you get it, or you get it, and then it's not doing it anymore, so you want another thing, and you can get that, and samsara just keeps rolling. You don't get it, and you're stuck here on retreat, so you can't really distract yourself, and you have to just sit there and feel greed feels like this. Then you start to see why most people don't want to look at greed. Better to act on it than feel it, my god. I mean, talk about masochism. <laughs> and greed's nothing compared to how much suffering there is in hatred and fear. Greed gets under the radar, though. Don't kid yourself if you're like a greedy type and not an aversive type that you're, you're really better. Don't kid yourself. It gets under the radar, and you think, oh, no, everything's just nice. Everything's just nice, until you can't get that thing. Then you're in trouble. So what we're doing, it may be relatively rare, but it's, in my opinion, so important. We can't change anybody else's relationship to their experience. We know that. I mean, within our close, intimate relationships, we may not know that and keep trying, but you can't. <laughs> but we can work with understanding our own. and then. That's what we can bring to the world is who we are and how we respond and how we relate. And it does make a difference. So it's so important what we do. And when I was telling some of these guys, they said, what are you talking about tonight? And they said, oh, you know, awareness and Dachau. <laughs> they said, that's kind of a leap, isn't it? But I don't think it's a leap. At all, I don't think it's a leap. I think that's what this world is. And what we're doing here isn't just some, you know, intellectual, interesting thing we're doing because we got a few months. This is really the heart of freedom and suffering, and not only for ourselves, but for what we can bring to the world. And I say that because hopefully when, when you touch into that for yourself, if you believe it, you don't have to believe it. It's, it's up to you. That gives me, when I remember that, when I believe that, when I know it's true, the courage that it takes to keep waking up into this moment. Because at least 50% of the time, it's not going to be a pleasant moment. I mean, there's phases when there's more pleasant than unpleasant. But if you think awakening is about you get more pleasant moments and less unpleasant moments, you can throw that idea out the window. Because that's really where these, these, um, these deep habits come from. And it's so, I mean, it sounds so kind of clinical and technical. And how can the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral lead to concentration camps? That's the genius of the Buddha, in my humble opinion, that he could, I mean, he was brilliant and obviously had quite a little bit of mindfulness, that he could, you know, really see this moment-to-moment way the mind was working in the cause-and-effect relationship. But we don't have to be Buddha. We can take what we've said, what we've learned, and then just take it on trial and look in your experience and see, is it so? Does this happen for me? As I said, it's on a smaller scale, but it's the same habits. And they're just as strong. So we really need this, this ardency, this commitment, this courage to show up with this simple, non-judging, committed awareness. So our path isn't to make ourselves different. Awareness is our path. This pure, simple awareness of what is. 
I know you're probably all familiar with this quotation. It just kind of turns things on its head. This the Buddha. I know you know this. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments. As I say, the attachments, the aversions, the kalatia, the torments, the distortions of mind. It is colored, this luminous mind, by the attachments that visit it, that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really does understand. And so for them, there is cultivation of the mind. To me, that, that kind of turns our unexamined, the unexamined assumptions of the world on their head. What I'm calling unexamined assumptions, what the robot mind acts on, what the normal word acts on. You want something? Right, get it. You know, greed is good, right? But that if there's wanting, that means you need it. If you get it, you'll be happy. And that that's just the normal way of things. That with unpleasant experience, naturally there's ill will and aversion or anger or fear. What else? Unpleasant is bad and pleasant is good, right? That's just the unexamined assumption about things. And if something is neither pleasant or unpleasant, well, we just don't even notice it. That's delusion. The other aspect of delusion, and again, the unexamined assumption, is that basically, it's all about me. What we call identification. But the pleasantness, we want it because it gratifies me. Unpleasant, ill will comes up because it's not nice for me. And even neutral, it's all I'm bored. I need something to happen because it's a little scary if there's not something to react to, then there's no me to really, you know, suffer. So this, what this quotation is saying, the attachments, which is, I'm calling greed, hatred, and delusion, the attachments, they visit the luminous nature of a moment of awareness, a moment of consciousness, but they do not touch it, color it, stain it, harm it in any way. But the kalatia, the greed, the wanting, the aversion, the fear, the me, 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 is just basically so much louder, you could say. So much more obvious. We're so much more trained to give all our interest and energy to that, that that's where we go. We forget to turn, oh, greed is like this. Well, that's not what good is that? Greed is like this. Give me a break, you know. <laughs> ill will. Ugh, ill will feels like this. Yeah, well, something better should be happening than that. You know, we want to get in, focus on the experience, focus on what we can get, focus on what we can get rid of. Turn around. What we're doing here is turning around and recognizing a moment of awareness, a moment of pure conscious awareness. That's all. It's not about changing the experience. It's just about re-recognizing over and over and over and over mindful awareness. And the steadiness, as we're doing, that's what we're doing here. I'm sure you know that's, that's all, anything we're talking about is trying to support us to do. And at first it's, it's some work and we forget and we don't know how to just let awareness notice what's happening. We think we have to do it. That's why it's so exhausting. You're trying to relax and be present with just this. No, not this, this. I'm trying to be present with the breath. No, not that way, this way, right? No, I don't want to be present. If I was really present, this wouldn't be happening. This would be happening, right? And then you wonder how come we're all knotted up. Awareness is awareness of doesn't matter. Whatever's arising does not stain or color or tear or damage awareness or mindfulness in any way. In any way. That's what's turning it on its head, so to speak. Because the, the moments of mindful awareness, they're just much, they're not flashy. 
much more subtle than all this stuff that's going on, beautiful, ugly, lovely, whatever. Just much more subtle, but available in any moment, irregardless, isn't right, regardless of whatever experience is happening. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Sense of self, not sense of self. Sense of self is just another arising experience in a moment. So our practice is really to strengthen this interest. That's why Joseph was talking about last night, ardency, clearly knowing, mindfulness. Then whatever's arising, as the mindfulness, as I was saying, is difficult in the beginning, and we're, we gradually learn how to just be here for this moment, be here for this moment, a little less striving, and you find magically the awareness starts to get a momentum of its own. And if you're doing metta practice, it's the same. The awareness of the metta starts to get a momentum of its own. And in that more steady, not 100% steady like Sally said, but more steady, wisdom, panya, arises by itself. It's not our job to figure out what wisdom is, how it should arise, and make it come. No way. Because that's already what we can only think about what we already know, or what we've heard, or what we think, and what we think wisdom should be. Actually, it'd be helpful if you look in your mind and see what thoughts you have about what wisdom should be, so you know what not to believe. (laughs) Because any thought is too limited. Any thought is too limited. So our doorway to wisdom, our doorway, is just this simple, steady awareness that allows for accurate recognition of the way things are in this moment to arise. So the habits of you know, wanting that come with pleasant. That's, I mean, we're caught in it, but that's fairly observable, no? I mean, at times, when the mind is somewhat quiet, we can see you're not really wanting unpleasant experience. So just noticing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thoughts, moods, they can have a little tinge, as the Buddha said, of being pleasant or unpleasant or neither one to us. We mostly don't notice this. It's a feeling. It's a, it's a mental quality. It's not like a thing in the experience. But the experience just, we, ex- we experience any sense experience with just that tinge. It's quick. It's gone. It's very fleeting. And the habits are so strong that when it's pleasant, we just that mind just a little bit leans in once more. And that assumption, oh, this is right. This is good. This is the way things are supposed to be. I mean, it's just so kind of ingrained. It can be a little bit unpleasant. A sound just comes. Just experience it really strong, shocking, unpleasant, or even just mildly unpleasant. And it's not the same for everybody, and it's not the same for any one person all the time. It's changing in every moment. A little bit unpleasant, just the tendency to shrink back a little bit. You know, If it's stronger, tendency to get rid of it. And if we're really lost in it, it goes into ill will or it goes into fear. And that just, you know, well, of course, um, we're not saying you should go and make yourself, you know, suffer or hurt. But we think, of course, it's normal. It's unpleasant. It should be gone. That is just the way of things. Of course it's suffering. And then the neutral, we just space out. Go to sleep or look for more intensity or make up a daydream. And... The assumption is that it's these experiences that are in the way of peace or happiness or freedom or whatever, right? And I don't have to tell you that we get caught in the same patterns in our meditation, do I? I mean, I still, I mean, I talk about this stuff all the time. On some level, on, some, on my mental level, I really know it, but that's not enough. On my cellular level, sometimes I really know it. And then the times that I don't really know it, because everything is only this moment, I find I'm practicing away, or I'm in my life, and all of a sudden I'm suffering, I'm struggling, and I go, what's going on? I go, oh, I think this thing shouldn't be happening. But as you know, the, there's a, a teacher, not a Buddhist teacher in California, Byron Katie, she has a great line, she says, when you fight with reality, you lose. 
it shouldn't be happening. It's happening. This is what's happening. Oh, it's like this. And then it's okay. The block to the freedom, the peace, the ease, the natural peace and ease, this luminous mind, that's what turns it on its head. What if, as Ajahn Amaro says, this luminous mind, the natural peace and ease of mind, is what's really natural. We just don't remember to notice it. And the kalesha, the attachments that visit, that color, that seem to block the natural peace and ease, they're adventitious. They come and go. We don't need to give them all the attention. We can notice them, but come back and turn around and notice the awareness, the natural peace and ease in this moment. We can really learn to shift and that's when, so when the Buddha says, for those unlearned people, there's no cultivation of the mind. You're just like a victim. It's unpleasant. It's bad. What can I do? It's pleasant. I need more. I can't get it. What can I do? And it's all about me. There's like no way out of that. But this is offering us a chance to just really turn that on its head and explore. So the work of our mind, the work of meditation, is to see both how the mind's working when the natural peace and ease is observable, accessible, when it's not, what's going on? How does suffering arise in the mind? How does it cease? And we can see this moment after moment. When we get caught in hating the suffering and taking it personally and blaming ourselves, we're missing, just in that moment, we're missing, oh, look how it works. But then you're blaming yourself and suddenly you go, oh, blaming myself is like this, that's aversion. And here it is again. Natural peace and ease available. That's our path. So the assumptions that pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad, neutral we don't see, it's all about me, those, they're not subtle. And we do get caught, but in some ways I think they're Enough easy to easy to recognize. Sometimes they're easy to recognize. It's certainly workable. But an even more profound and subtle level of the way that these these kalashas, these distortions or of mind work when we're not aware of them, is that um, when there's wanting, greed in the mind, and we're not aware of it in a moment of consciousness, when there's fear or aversion and we're not aware that it's there, when there's delusion, confusion, and we're not aware that it's there, it actually colors perception so that we do not perceive what's happening in this moment accurately. And that's when we talk about the delusion of it's all about me, that I'm the separate, lasting, temporal entity it's not like that that's an idea we can talk ourselves out of. I bet you've tried. <laughs> Doesn't work, does it? In fact, the more you think about, yes, yes, I, I really get it. It's all conditions. It's all just arising. We're all part of the big net of Indra, and there's no separation here. Therefore, from now on, I will just respond with compassion, knowing that we're one. And then, you know, two minutes later, somebody gets in front of you in line and you're like, I can't believe it. Oh, I'm responding with compassion, responding with compassion. And then you, I, why can't I respond with compassion? I'm so, I'm so greedy. I'm so deluded. I'm so selfish. And then you're beating yourself up. All this in service of seeing that there's no self, right? Because it comes right back. We're cycling it all around me, 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 because it's not something we can talk ourselves out of. It's a deeply rooted moment-to-moment, because there's only moment-to-moment, perception. It's the perception that without wisdom, we don't perceive accurately. And we can't will ourselves to perceive, because we don't even know we're not perceiving accurately. This is another really pretty famous quotation from Einstein. It exactly fits this. So Einstein. A human being is a part of a whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. She experiences herself, her thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion 
of consciousness. It's exactly that, an optical delusion of consciousness that we're something existing in time and space separate from other things. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for the few people nearest to us. He goes on to say, our task is to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. But I will also add that the simplicity and commitment to moment-to-moment pure awareness, when it's possible and when it's not, in the next moment we remember again, also frees us from this optical delusion, from this prison, because the prison is a delusion of recognizing wrongly. The genius of the Buddha was to see through this. I'll give you an example of all the delusions. There's something called the four agati, the four wrong courses of behavior or prejudice from the Vinaya, from the the rules of the monks in the, in the Pali Canon. And so the, the four of these, one is called Chandagati, which is prejudice, or seeing wrongly, and it leads to wrong action caused by desire, by partiality. And it's really, we see wrongly. The desire causes us to perceive inaccurately, that causes us to have prejudice, that causes us to make decisions that aren't based on the way things really are, the limitation, that optical delusion. Dosagati, the same thing, prejudice caused by hatred, enmity, ill will. Mohagati, prejudice caused by delusion, by not seeing clearly. And the fourth one, bayagati, which is fear, prejudice and wrong action, wrong choices, wrong decisions caused by fear. And I mean, when you say it, this is kind of obvious, isn't it? When we're really afraid, really afraid, doesn't everything look fearful? And, and even if you tell yourself it's not, it's the actual perception. You really can't tell what's what. They say uh, when one, uh, in, the, in Sotapanna, when they have a first taste of awakening, that those four prejudices are seen through. Well, the genius of the Buddha, the Mohagati, is the one that really kind of underlies all of them. Continuing to have that optical delusion of me, the center of everything. And don't judge it, but notice how it acts when it's here, when it's not. How any sense experience is immediately experiences me hearing. Or what does that sound mean about me? Or you see somebody walking in the distance and right away it's like, oh, they're walking better than me. What does that mean, you know? Or they're sitting, oh, I'm sitting better than them. Or, oh, that, that's a really pretty pair of socks. I wish I had it. Oh, I'm so greedy. Oh, I tell me, 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 me. Just noticing that. And the genius of the Buddha was to see through this. And in the moments when there's not that me and other, when there's just not all me, the center of things, there's accurate recognition. It happens by itself. We can't will it, but it happens quite naturally because the the perception, the clarity, the awareness isn't colored by confusion. But we can't do it from some ideal. Even, you know, the best of intentions. There's a great story I heard on the radio. It was, um, well, they're talking about economic policy of, of um, enlightened self-interest, which as we know, that doesn't work. But they, they were using this example, which I loved, of, I, I think, I guess it's true, that some footbridge had been built recently over the Thames River in London, and some big footbridge. And so soon after it opened, a lot, hundreds of people were walking over it. And it, I guess maybe it's right after it opened. So they, you know, it was just getting used to it. They said, I remember the radio said it was like two or three or 400 people were on this bridge. And the whole bridge started to really shake. It was like too many people on this bridge. And of course, everyone got kind of scared. And each person did what seemed like the appropriate thing to do, which it was shaking this way, so each person stepped over that way. All 400 of them stepped over that way, which, of course, made the whole thing worse. 
So, you know, you're acting from the best of intentions, but it's limited by just me, you know? And we can't will ourselves out of that. In a moment when this is really what Sampajanya, what Joseph was talking about last night, clear comprehension, the whole big context, mindfulness in the context would see, oh, what's going on here? It's shaking, you know, and some would go that way because it's not this reference point of me, which is our natural reference point. So that's an example of Sampajanya and how it happens quite naturally when we're not locked in to this optical delusion. I just wanted to offer this, I uh, read in this uh, great book that came out recently from Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano, who are two um, Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And they, they brought out this book. It's a compilation of sutta references and some stuff from Ajahn Chah. It's called The Island. And it's all about um, aspects of awakening, of nibbana. And, uh, it's, it's, it's quite wonderful. They've done a great job of compiling all these references. And uh, of course, it's, it's for free distribution, the island, if you write to them. Anyway, this is from Ajahn Chah talking about, in his very pithy way, earthy way, the relationship between sati, sampajanya, and panya, which sati is the mindfulness, Sampajanya, the, the clearly knowing, and Panya wisdom, you know, that Joseph talked about last night. Very, anyway, I liked it. It sort of fits in here, not completely, but <laughs> I like it. So he says, Sati, Sati is like the hand, like our hand, that can simply picks things up and cognizes them. Sampajanya, clearly knowing, is like the arm. The arm is what enables the hand to reach for objects to move objects around. So the sampajanya, the clearly knowing, refers to seeing an object in its bigger context, how it relates to its surroundings. And panya, he says, is like the life source. It's like the body. So for him, panya is the seeing of things in terms of anicca, the impermanent nature, dukkha, the unreliable, unsatisfactory nature, anatta, that there's no intrinsic, self-existing, separate entity here. Seeing things in that way, that's panya. And he says that while a hand and arm have their functions, but without the body, they are powerless. And it's like that, sati and sampajanya, that's what we practice. The panya, seeing clearly, knowing, seeing through, our optical delusions of permanence, of, of this thing is going to make me happy, of separate entity, that happens naturally and spontaneously because that's just the nature of things. We don't have to create it. It's how it is. We're just setting up the conditions where we stop feeding the habits and instead we feed the awareness and it allows the Dhamma to reveal itself. And in that self-revealing dhamma, our heart and mind is free. There's still unpleasant in the world. Don't think there's not. The suffering, though, the suffering doesn't have to be there in that way. And we can experience this just in a moment, just in a moment. Whether you're, you know, you're hurting or you're down on yourself or you're just feeling lousy, and in that moment, oh, feeling lousy is like this. And all that extra just goes away, just goes away. Remember, someone was telling me about their, their feeling really sick. And when they were feeling really like kind of trying to be mindful of it, trying, but really caught and knowing they were caught and feeling kind of reactive to the symptoms and the physical experience and noticing that, you know, that kind of struggle. And then at another point, just completely opened into, oh, Heat is like this, tingling is like this, burning is like this, and not even getting put together in a sense of I'm sick, but just experience. There was no more suffering about it. And then there were even moments when you couldn't even say you were sick. There was, you didn't even feel sick at all. You see, there's moments when you're sick, there's moments when you're not, and it's just what it is. That's quite knowable 
for all of us. This wisdom, to me, is like such a huge relief to know that with the steadiness of awareness, wisdom is inevitable because nature is how it is. We don't have to create it, thank God. In fact, we only make a mess when we try to create it. All we have to do is settle back, bring our interest, our love, our commitment, our courage, and just let it rip. It's ripping anyway. All we're doing is just showing up and being here with it. Zajan Chah says, be the knower, the knower of experience, not the owner of experience. Just loving the knowing, loving the awareness. It's like a it's like a Tai Chi move from being caught in oh, this, oh, it's like this. That's Ajahn Sumedho's language. It's like this. It's helped me so much. In daily life and meditation, it's the same. You're all caught. You're liking, you're not liking. You can't even say what's happening, but you know something is going on that you wish wasn't. What is it? Oh, I don't know. It's like this. That's all. Stop trying to fix or own or be or figure it out. It's like this. It's really powerful. So I just want to end with another statement from Ajahn Chah, which I'm just dropping in for your reflection. I'm not saying if I totally, you'll hear what I mean. Just see how you think about it. He says, in his way, samsara and nibbana are like the front and back of the hand. They happen in the same place and are known by the same awareness. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.